Rashi does not usually explore why one parasha in the Torah follows the other, unless it's critically important for us to understand the pshat, the simple understanding of the story. So we are curious, how come it is that Rashi says, you know why the spies follow Miriam? Well, why are you asking the question in the first place? And then, of course, the fact that Rashi makes the comparison is in itself interesting. We'll pick up certain nuances in the way that Rashi says it. Just as Miriam spoke about her brother Moshe, so they spoke about the land. And you might think, actually, that there's a comparison over here, almost as if to say that they had spoken badly, yet Rashi uses a word like Dibba, which could be interpreted as positive or as negative. And so what we're going to discover is that Rashi is concerned by the fact that it's not uncommon in the Torah to put barriers in between two stories, even if they are um, chronological, because sometimes we need to distinguish between the two, and that would have been a good idea over here, so that we don't get a sense that Miriam and the spies are considered similar personalities. That's why you would have expected the Torah to separate the two. Why does the Torah have the two of them together? Because they should have learnt a lesson from Miriam's behavior. And the lesson they should have learned was not necessarily about speaking badly, but about speaking too much. Sometimes that's the problem. It's the beginning of our parasha where it says, Shlach Lecha Anoshim. Davish tells Moshe Rabbeinu, send these spies. Pesh Rashi, Lom Onismacha Parashas Miraglim, Parashas Miriam. Why, says Rashi, is the story of the Miraglim so soon after the story of Miriam? Lefi, Shaloks al Iske Diba, because Miriam was so-called punished for having engaged in talk. She spoke about her brother Moshe. And these wicked people, the spies, saw what happened and they did not take a lesson from it. So we need to understand. We already see in many places that because Rashi only rarely compares the flow of one parasha into the next, that implies to us that it's not really an issue that we have to deal with typically in the world of Pshat to understand why one parasha follows on after another. It's not something that bothers us too much. And of course, if the storyline is actually chronological, and in a second we're going to see that this is very chronological, then the Pshat is not bothered by the fact that this parasha follows that parasha. It makes sense. It's chronology. So It really doesn't make sense in our case. This is raised by many of the commentaries. Seeing as the story of the Miraglim happened literally one day after Miriam was released from her quarantine, which was on the 28th of, of Sivan, and this was now on the 29th of Sivan, So according to Pshat, why would you even raise the question, why did Shlach come after Baal Oisra? Obviously why, because the stories happened directly one after the next. So that's going to be our main question. Why does Rashi feel the need to explain the juxtaposition of these two parashas. In addition to that, we have a series of questions on the wording that Rashi uses. There are a few nuances in the language of Rashi that we have to explore, mayhem including. Why does Rashi use a euphemistic expression? That Miriam was smitten because of the engagement with Diba. What does that mean? 
He should have just said, Miriam was punished for speaking Lashon Hara, and these people also spoke Lashon Hara. Rashi has, in fact, used this exact expression, Loshan Hara, with regards to Miriam elsewhere. The question gets even bigger in the next parak of the story in our parasha. Later on, Rashi takes the same word Diba, which he's now quoting, when it appears later in the Pasuk, and he says, any time that you talk about Diba, it means instruction to speak. And it's not always bad. Sometimes Diba is positive. Sometimes it's negative. So why then, if Rashi wants to say the Miraglim should have learned from the Lashon Hora of Miriam and they didn't, why does he use the word Dibo, which is ambiguous? It could potentially also mean positive language. That's question one on the Rashi's choice of language. Question two. Why does Rashi have to tell us who the subject was of Miriam's Lashon Hara? That's irrelevant. Surely the message is, she spoke badly and was punished. They didn't pay attention to it, and so they also spoke badly and ended up being punished. It's irrelevant who Miriam spoke about. Surely over here the point is how Miriam spoke rather than who she spoke about. Question three. Rashi generally is succinct, yet over here he seems to use language that is unnecessary language. Why does he refer to the Miraglim in this elaborate way? In spite of what they saw with Miriam, these wicked people didn't learn. He could have just said, they we know who they is. We're reading the parasha. We know it's the Miraglim. You don't have to now emphasize, Rashi, that they are the Rashoim called the Miraglim. Just say, and they didn't pay attention. Which brings us to question four. Why does Rashi use that expression? They saw and they didn't take a lesson from what they had seen. Could have just said that they saw the lesson and didn't pay attention to it. Rashi is saying something else over here. They saw something happen and didn't take the lesson from what they saw. Why that language? Elsewhere, Rashi uses a different expression. It says, you saw the lesson and you didn't heed it. And lastly, How come Rashi in the headline includes the words which he doesn't seem to be commenting on? Surely Rashi could have just used the word shlach. Go back one parasha in parashas Baloischa, where Rashi also spoke about why the story of the menorah is juxtaposed right after the story of the Nesim inaugurating the Mizbeach. And there he just used the one word, not the full phrase. So how come over here does Rashi have to say, Okay, so what's really bothering us? Why does Rashi feel it's necessary to explain a chronological sequence in the Torah, which is so logical, and say, why did it have to be so logical? And then these five expressions, which all seem to be elaborate and unnecessary. So, in order to understand this, we have to ask a bigger question, which is, 
what did the Meraglim do that was so bad? Let's be honest about it. They were given a mandate. They followed their mandate. Maybe they overstepped a little bit. Maybe they said things they shouldn't have said. But is that really so bad? So, what was so severe about the Meraglim's sin? Their, their mandate was go check out the land and report back to us. What is it like? What are the people like? What is the topography? What is the, the geography? What did they do wrong? They came back and they reported what they saw, truthfully. You want to know what kind of people? Strong people. You want to know what kind of cities we are? Fortified cities. What did they do wrong? So you're not going to say. You're going to say, well, the problem is that they then said, this is a land that nobody could survive. It's a land that swallows its people whole. Or maybe you'll say what they did wrong is they were asked to give a description. They also gave a conclusion. They said, it's impossible. There's no way that we could take the land. Maybe that's what they did wrong. The only thing with that argument, even though it is brought in many places, including Sichas, the problem with that is that Kalev responded before they said any of those things. Kalev already tried to silence them the minute they said, great, strong people, big, fortified cities, large fruit. He said, shh, vayas. moving. That implies that already what they were saying, even though it appears to suit their mandate, was already inappropriate. What's so inappropriate? What did they do wrong? The truth is, even their conclusion that there's no way you could take Eretz Yisrael, we could defend that conclusion on multiple levels. Firstly, on a natural level and even on a miraculous level. If you really read what the Miraglim said, they did not say, we won't enter that land. They said it is impossible for us to enter that land. Now that sounds like semantics, but it's a big difference. They made a simple calculation. We see how powerful they are. We know how powerful we are. According to the rules of nature, we cannot do this. What they is going to decide, that's his business. But it's not possible in normal human natural terms. It's not possible for us to be able to succeed. Even when they said what the Gemara and Soto calls this de- heretical declaration that those people are more powerful than Hashem himself, the Gemara says it's like they were speaking about Hashem. It's not that they were being heretical, even though it sounds that way. Um, what they were trying to say is that these people are so powerful that it's difficult to even imagine what kind of a miracle could uproot them. Not to say that they cannot do it, just to say we cannot imagine that level of miracle. That's why you'll notice Kalev, when he responds to them, doesn't say, oh, no, no, it is possible naturally. We can do it. We have this many soldiers and we have those kinds of weapons. He doesn't say that. 
And not only that, but Kalev doesn't even say that, don't worry, Hashem will do miracles for us. Instead, Kalev says something very radical. He says, we'll definitely go up. That even if Hashem tells us we have to make ladders and climb up into Shomayim, we'll do that. In other words, Kalev is acknowledging the fact that their argument has validity, certainly in the, in the natural realm and even in the miraculous realm. So Kalev is saying to them, we have to follow Hashem, even if that means we have to do something which has never had a precedent in history and hasn't even had a precedent in miracles, we're still going to do it. So what did these Miraglim say that was so objectionable? They placed the facts in front of the people and they made a conclusion which says, from what we can see, we don't see a way forward. We don't see a miracle that can win against these people. The mandate that the Miraglim was given was, Go find out how the people operate, what the lay of the land is, so that we can strategize for a regular, normal human war. So they're well within their rights. And if that's what they were asked to do, give us the strategic analysis of this, uh, of this offensive, they did it. So what's so terrible that they deserve such horrific consequences? Because what? Because they said they had an opinion as well. That's what Rashi has to answer. Rashi, by telling us that the Miraglim did not learn from Miriam, and that's why the Torah puts the two stories next to each other, through that, Rashi is illustrating to us exactly what was wrong with the Miraglim's attitude and their behavior. The fact that the two parashiyas are next to each other is there to illustrate for us what the Miraglim did wrong. Because you might have thought that the juxtaposition of the two parashiyas is wholly inappropriate because it could mislead us and we might actually have a negative perspective on Miriam. So Rashi has to tell you that's not why the two parashiyas are there. We're not looking to rely on Miriam. We're trying to highlight what the Miraglim did wrong. The reason Rashi asked this question in the first place, even though even though the chronology makes tremendous sense, straight after Miriam was recovered, then the Miraglim went. Why is Rashi even raising a question? Because Rashi knows that sometimes in the Torah it is correct and it is required to put a buffer between two portions in the Torah even if they are chronological. And guess where we just saw that? In the previous parasha. In the previous parasha, Ba'alois Rashi comments in Shishi over the fact that it says, and when the Aaron was, was uh, on the move, then this is what they would say. Asks Rashi, Rashi says clearly that the reason that that paragraph, Vahib bin Sa'aran, is inserted at that point in the Torah is as a buffer between two stories of misfortune in the community. 
Logic would say the same thing should apply here. If you read, as we do, the two stories, one after the other, the story of Miriam and then the story of the Miraglim, and I'll see that the common denominator is that they are both stories of inappropriate speech, speaking negatively about something or someone, you're going to see two stories that are so similar, you could easily jump to the conclusion, Miriam and the Miraglim are of similar caliber. Or, Miriam and the Miraglim had stories where they did similar things. That's what you'd assume, because look, the Torah put them next to each other. Therefore, Rashi says, why? Why did the Torah take that risk? Why did the Torah potentially expose Miriam in an inappropriate way? Ironically, right? We're talking about Lashon Hora, and then you put Miriam in a place where people could think of her in a Lashon Hora way. Oh, she's like the Miraglim. Even though everybody can see blatantly that the results and consequences of Miriam's story and that of the Miraglim are vastly different. Because look, but Miriam, Gam Lachar, Vatisagir Miriam, Harivam, Loy Nasade, Yosef Miriam, Zakovet, Kolekla, Mokim. Miriam was put into a quarantine, sure, for seven days, yes, but the entire community stopped and waited for her, which Rashi says is respect that Hashem showed her. Mashenke and Aleph Miraglim, by Yemosu, by Magaifa, the Miraglim were not quarantined, they died in the most horrific way. Not only were they punished, but the entire generation of people over the ages of 20 were going to die. And everybody else who was young enough not to be affected by this plague had to still circle in the desert for 40 years. So any thinking person can tell, okay, listen, the story of Miriam and the story of the Miraglim cannot be the same because the consequences are so vastly different. Still, there's a concern that Rashi has. You could think it's not because the Miraglim was so bad, the Miraglim are similar to Miriam. The reason so many people were affected was because so many people took their story to heart and also became, uh, so to speak, re- rebels against Hashem. Therefore, they were punished. So I don't know clearly by the consequences that Miriam and the Miraglim are so vastly different. And then you'll say Miriam didn't have a long, big impact on the rest of the community because it was between her and Aaron. That's why Rashi, when he gave the headline for this commentary, included the words, not just shlach, why is this parasha next to that parasha? But lecha anoshim to emphasize because Rashi is trying to show us what's bothering him over here. You're going to look at these people. You know who these people are? You know who selected them? You know who empowered them? They are great people, at least when they started. So Rashi is using that to help us understand how much you might believe that Miriam and the Miraglim are of similar caliber. When Rashi uses those words, he's immediately reminding us that these Miraglim were sent by Moshe on his responsibility. 
So immediately you should be conscious of the fact that if these are the people who were selected by Moshe Rabbeinu for this job, they're the best we have. They're the people who have the greatest assets and the greatest talent to fulfill this particular mission. And that's why the Torah calls him Anoshim, which is the word that Rashi includes in his headline. Anoshim means people of stature. And Rashi says, When they started off, they were in a good space. So that's what Rashi wants us to know. You read this parasha according to Pshat, and it comes straight after Miriam, and your mind immediately tells you Miriam and the Miraglim have a tremendous amount in common. So Rashi says, therefore, the Torah needed to highlight and emphasize for us that you would think the Miraglim are like Miriam. Oh boy, are they not like Miriam. Rashi says the best way to have made that distinction would have been to put a buffer in between. So that in your mind, you know, two separate stories, two separate scenarios, two separate classes of people. Therefore, Rashi has this big, big question. If Miriam and the Miraglim are so different, why would the Torah allow me to misunderstand and believe the possibility that Miriam is similar to the Miraglim or vice versa? So Rashi is going to explain to us that, yes, seeing the two stories one after the other might give you the impression that the characters, the personalities in the story are so similar. Says Rashi, I'll explain to you why the Torah did it. Not to make any kind of comparison between Miriam and the Miraglim, but rather to show you, look how badly the Miraglim, the Miraglim messed up because they had this vivid lesson right in front of their eyes and they ignored it. Rashi, so Rashi explains, Lefisha loksal iske divo. Rashi tells us, you know why the parishes come together? Because look what happened to Miriam. She spoke out of turn and suffered for it, and they saw it happen, and they didn't take a lesson. The reason the Torah put these two parishes together is because we know that the Miraglim did something bad, because they... Didn't, they, they rebelled against Hashem or they incited rebellion against Hashem. But now we're going to see another layer of how bad the Miraglim's mess-up was. In fact, once we know this particular layer, this particular perspective, we'll appreciate far better why the Miraglim were punished so badly. What made the story of the Miraglim so much worse? that they had an opportunity to pay attention to what was going on around them and to learn to avoid such a mistake, and they ignored the invitation. That's what Rashi says. What does Rashi want us to know? It's not something that they had to reflect on and go through a process of introspection and make comparisons. They saw it in front of their eyes. All they had to do was Pay attention. That's all. But they didn't. And here's where the comparison lies. There's no comparison between the persona of Miriam and the Miraglim. Cannot compare. Miriam's in a class of her own. What you can compare is the nature of what kind of Avera they did. There there is similarity. How do I know? Because they should have learned from Miriam. They were about to do exactly what Miriam had done wrong. 
Because their behavior was going to be so similar, because their mistake was going to be so similar to Miriam's, that's why they should have learned from her. That's why Rashi doesn't just say hey, they generically in the Miraglim didn't pay attention. He says they, the wicked people, didn't pay attention. Rashi saying Rishoyim to highlight that what links them to the story of Miriam is the nature of the sin, not the nature of the people. They're different people. They are Rishoyim. By Rashi calling them Rishoyim, he is separating them to the extreme from Miriam, who he just told us, So Rashi is clarifying for us that the closeness of the two stories is not to make any comparison between the personalities of the two stories, because they're totally different. These are Rishoyim, what is the connection? They both behaved in a similar fashion. They engaged in, a, in, a, in an activity that was a similar activity. What's the similar activity? So, just as we ask the question, what was so bad about what the Miraglim did, we actually have to ask the question, what was so bad about what Miriam did? I mean, her intentions were not malicious. She was in the appropriate position to say what she said. She had genuine concerns. She went not all over the place, she spoke to her own brother. What's wrong with her attitude and her and her behavior? Like Rashi says, the fact that she said Moshe had married this Kushis woman and had now divorced her, that was fact. It's true that Moshe divorced his wife, which caused her pain. Plus, Rashi makes it absolutely clear that Miriam's intentions were not malicious. So what did Miriam do? The problem is that Miriam did not appreciate Moshe's greatness to the extent that she should have. She thought the greatness of Moshe was that Abisha speaks to Moshe. And then Abisha was going to explain that there's a whole lot more. It's not just that I speak to him, and he's uh, and he doesn't fall and, and collapse when he has uh, prophecy, etc. So because Miriam believed that the greatness of Moshe was that he speaks to Hashem like we speak to Hashem, and she underestimated his greatness, therefore, that's why she believed that Moshe should never have divorced his wife. So is it really appropriate that because Miriam underestimated Moshe Rabbeinu's greatness, which is exponentially beyond what she could ever imagine. It's like a person standing on the ground trying to see the top of a mountain through the clouds. You've never been there. You don't know what it is. You can't see it. So for that, Miriam deserved such a hectic punishment? So Rashi. So Rashi explains, let's tell you what Miriam did wrong. The issue over here was not that Miriam spoke badly, but the fact that Miriam engaged in speak. Meaning, the fact that Miriam spoke a lot about Moshe, even if it was just to one person, to Aaron, the speaking a lot, the making a whole tumult about the story, that was the issue. 
The moment Miriam detected something that Moshe was doing that she couldn't understand, it was not appropriate for Miriam to then go and speak about it. Not just to speak about it, but to be engaged and you know, enmeshed in the experience of speaking. Even though, as we've already mentioned, everything that Miriam shared was factual and none of it was malicious. Still, that engagement, that getting caught up in the conversation, the did you hear, what do you think kind of a conversation, that's not going to land up in Diba Tova. It's not going to be complimentary or useful. If anything, it's going to land up in the opposite. And if Miriam really wanted to understand why Moshe had chosen to behave in a certain way, Miriam should have confronted Moshe privately and asked. So what's the issue with Miriam? What got Miriam into trouble? Speaking a lot about the topic. It's in this regard that the Meraglim are so similar to Miriam. Just like Miriam only presented facts, they only presented facts. But how they presented those facts, iske diba, lots of talk, lots of conversation. What do you think? How did, how are we going to do this? Moshe said this, that became a little obsessive. They spoke so much about it, they literally talked it up. The, the power of the people, the challenges of the land, to the point that the Jews started to panic. If the Miraglim were honestly bothered, how could they expect us to go conquer a land where there are such mighty warriors living there? Then, well, then they should have kept their message short and then gone to Moshe and said, what's going on over here? You asked us to do this, but we don't think it's possible. But the fact that they spoke about it in so much detail and created so much conversation, they precipitated conversation around it, even to the extent of saying, it's not possible. There's only one way that this could end. The people losing hope. The people rising up against Moshe. The people saying, we want to go back to Mitzrayim. So now we've seen the, the connection. The fact that the Torah puts the Miraglim straight after Miriam is not to, to suggest that the Miraglim were of the caliber of Miriam. There's no way. It was to show us how dangerous it is to speak in a way where you, you really ramp it up. You create a lot of conversation around an issue. Wow, there's so much anti-Semitism in the world. Did you hear this event that's happening? Did you hear that? What's going to happen? How could you still tell me we're living in the time of Mashiach? There's so many things. That kind of conversation you keep talking it up and repeating it, that was common to Miriam and to the Miraglim, and in both cases with devastating results. In the Miraglim's case, obviously exponentially more so. So, Still, how could it be that Miriam did this? How could it be that Miriam engaged in this conversation about Moshe? This is Moshe Rabbeinu we're talking about over here. Who would dare to speak about him this way? 
So Miriam alludes to it in her own words because Miriam says, we're in a similar boat. Is Moshe the only one that Hashem ever spoke to? No, he speaks to us too. The fact that Miriam was conscious of Debesha speaks to us too. Although Miriam agreed and appreciated that Moshe was of a higher caliber, but Miriam couldn't perceive how high, how much more. Miriam could not understand that it was possible that Moshe Rabbeinu could be on such an elevated status that would justify separating from a wife who everybody understood was the most incredible human being and against the instruction of the Torah that a man has obligations to his wife and in a way that caused her pain. In other words, what prompted Miriam to believe that she was justified to speak the sense that Miriam had of her own spirituality? And the Miraglim had a similar issue. From their perspective, seeing as Moshe chose them and gave them the shlichus, in their minds, nobody could understand the shlichus better than they could. They were the hand-picked individuals by Moshe on Hashem's instruction. So nobody else is going to understand this conflict better than we are. Now once they, through their personal experience, had perceived themselves as grasshoppers compared to the inhabitants of Canaan, they were absolutely clear that that was the shlichus. They fulfilled the shlichus. They came back with a sentiment, it's obviously true. Be'emes, for real. And, and so it should be for the whole Jewish community. And therefore they took on, them, on their own shoulders to, to, to arrive at a conclusion on behalf of the entire community. This is an impossible mission. Why did that happen? Because they overestimated their position. Why did Miriam criticize Moshe? Because she overestimated the status that she had compared to Moshe Amen. And because the Meraglim was so convinced that their perspective was correct, that's why they spoke about it so much. Because they needed to illustrate the point that we, the hand-picked Shluchim with this particular mission, have come to this conclusion, so you need to understand it. Now we understand why Rashi didn't just tell us that the Miraglim learned nothing from the fact that, what, look what happened to Miriam, but specifically from the fact that Miriam spoke about her own brother. That brother, that relationship is key to the story. That shows you just how much the Miraglim did not learn the lesson from, from Miriam, to appreciate somebody who's way greater than you are. As we see from the, the petition that Aaron Akoyan made on behalf of Miriam, so a brother is part of your flesh. It's your own flesh and blood. Besides the fact that Miriam said, I'm also a Neviah and he is a Navi, Miriam says, he's my family, he's my flesh and blood. It's really difficult to expect that somebody could get their head around the concept that this could be my sibling 
and exponentially beyond me in spirituality. It's like we grew up in the same house. We ate the same porridge. What are you talking about? How could you tell me Moshe Rabbeinu is on another planet spiritually? So we understand and appreciate how it is that Miriam misread the circumstances and misread the situation. And in spite of all these really good reasons why Miriam could be justified in her criticism of Moshe, Miriam was still punished. So the Miraglim should have learned from that. The Miraglim should have learned, look, if Miriam could not expect her own brother, who she brought up, who she protected, and Miriam could not expect him to have to conform to her reality, how could the Miraglim expect that the entire Jewish community, Moshe and Aaron included, should have to conform to their perspective? Another nuance that highlights the point very clearly in Rashi's language. Rashi specifies these wicked Miraglim saw what happened to Miriam. It wasn't a legend that was passed through the generations. It was first-hand information that happened the day before. On the face of it, Rashi could have skipped the word Ra'u and he could have just said, they didn't learn from Miriam. But why did he say Ro? To understand that there's another strange element of the story of the Miraglim. If we're really honest about it, what did the Miraglim discover in Eretz Yisrael that they hadn't ever known about before? Something that scared them to the extent that they said there's no way into the land. Whatever they saw in Israel, they already knew from before. And we'll prove it. We know for sure that while the Yidden were still slaves in Mitzrayim, there was a lot of correspondence between the two countries, and they knew what was going on in Canaan. They had to have been couriers, went back and forth. There were messages. They knew what was going on. They knew who lived there. They knew what. That's how it is. You know what's going on in the neighboring country to some extent, especially there where there was a lot of trade and, and, and food reliance and so on. When the Yidin were praising Hashem after Kriya Samsuf in Yasher, one of the ways in which they praised Hashem is they said that Benek, the people of Canaan, melted. That tells you, obviously, they knew about the inhabitants of Canaan and about their power. Because, obviously, if they weren't powerful people, it wouldn't be a praise to Hashem that they melted. If they were weaklings and they melted, big deal. It's got nothing to do. It's not a praise of Hashem. And there are many other ways that we could prove that they knew this information about Canaan. And in spite of all of this, they were ready to go. So what changed when they saw the land? But as we very well know, you cannot compare the things that you've heard about to the things that you've you witnessed with your own eyes. So calls As long as whatever they knew about Eretz Canaan was just hearsay, was reports, was secondhand smoke, Okay, take it with a pinch of salt. Maybe people are exaggerating. We're still gung-ho. Let's go. Let's conquer the land. 
אבל כאשר ראו ביניהם ממש כמה עזה העם וגם מפה לדבר עליהם שישכר אותו ויחסו בהם אסקבוס ומקדמס. ולכן הדגיש שהמרגנים כמה פעמים ראינו, that's why look at the words that the מרגנים say, they keep saying, we saw. ראינו בני הענוקים, וגם בני הענוקים ראינו שם, these are words that they used. הנשרות בעצמם מסעשר סיפרו, they were saying, we saw this, you have to believe us, we saw this. וכן וירם אספרי הארץ, that's why they brought the fruit to show them so that the people could see it with their own eyes. ולכן הוא צריך להשאיר להדגשו לשוים הללו ראו חולמו. That's why Rashi has to say, yes, it's true that they saw all of the challenges, but they also saw what happened to Miriam. Rashi says they saw what happened with Miriam. They saw what happens when you speak around, even if you have a genuine concern. And you don't go address it directly to the person who could resolve it for you, but instead you create conversation in the community. You saw that yourself. That which you saw with Miriam should have given you the wherewithal to stand up to the challenge of what you saw in Canaan. If they had only heard the story of Miriam's second-hand smoke, you wouldn't be able to argue, why didn't you pay attention? Why didn't you learn from it? Because you'd say, look, the temptation to do what is wrong is because of things that we've seen. And the prevention from doing exactly what's wrong is because of something we've heard. It's an unfair balance. You can't expect that what we've heard will protect us from what we've seen. That's why Rashi says they saw what happened to Miriam. Why is it important to know that they saw what happened to Miriam? So that you know that the ammunition they had to protect themselves was as strong as the experience that they had. So there's a beautiful concept uh, that we can learn in halacha. You've got to be, it's like what we call a chaduda, you know, to, to kind of like sharpen your view of halacha. Comes out of this Rashi, but by first asking a question. You know, right at the beginning, Rashi was concerned that we, if we look at the smichos of the two parashas, you might think that Miriam and the Miraglim are similar in terms of personality and spirituality. How could the Torah have allowed the possibility of such a misguided interpretation? After all, isn't there an instruction that the Torah? You should always be clear and clean. Keep people clean. Let's not malign Miriam even incidentally. So an easy way out would be to say, as Rashi does say, that the Torah was composed each event as it happened. So Moshe transcribed what happened as it happened. So you could say, look, as the story unfolded, so Moshe wrote it down, because Moshe didn't want to delay preparing and presenting another part of the Torah. Now, at this point, the Miraglim haven't yet messed up. 
So maybe that's how it worked. Maybe that's why we have this chronology. Because as the stories occurred, so Moshe Rabbeinu recorded them, and as he recorded them, he put them out into the public space, and so Shlach lands up being straight after Baal Bamidbar. Now here's the thing. It's self-explanatory that every single day in the desert, including where Miriam comes out of quarantine, where the Miraglim gets sent on their way, you can be sure that many things happen every day. There are 600,000 adult males. That, that works out to about 3 million people in the camp. Especially as we know that they did move in between this time. They moved, which means they had to pack up the whole camp, they had to dismantle the Mishkan, they had to get to the new location, set everything up again, meet Baparan. Uh, put together the Mishkan again. Now, <laughs> a lot of things must have happened between when Miriam came out of quarantine and the entire movement of the whole camp and Shlach. So if you calculate it, there were thousands of things that occurred between Miriam coming out of quarantine and the appointment of the Miraglim. Many of those things were actually on Hashem's instruction, whether it be the Karbonus they brought in the Mishkan or when to move and when to stop. The point being, so there many, many, many things. Moshe didn't write them down. What did Moshe write down? End of Baal Oishcha, beginning of Shlach. Miriam comes out, the story of the Miraglim. The fact that Moshe wrote them side by side means he has a document that the Miraglim could have looked at to remind them how to behave. Look what's happening over here. Moshe Rabbeinu is willing to ignore the possibility that the juxtaposition of these two parashiyas might shed a bad light on Miriam. Why does he want to overlook that possibility? Because it's important to have this information ready for the Miragnum to keep them out of trouble. Still a problem. We have a general principle which says you never tell somebody you do an Avera so somebody else can get a benefit. Rashi addresses that. Rashi says the issue with the Miraglim over here is not that the Miraglim saw Miriam's behavior and they sinned. It's that they saw Miriam's behavior and they did not learn a lesson. See, this principle, the principle that you cannot sin in order to help somebody else, Rashi uses a very uh, unusual, unexpected language to describe it. He says, you cannot do a sin in order that somebody else should not be punished. Strange, right? Rashi should have said, you cannot sin to prevent somebody else sinning. But he doesn't interpret it that way. He says, you cannot sin to prevent somebody else being punished with a serious punishment. Why? What's the comparison? So we should then recommend that Rashi is explaining what Toysavus also says. 
When we say that you may not sin to help another Jew, that's when the person's already done the Avera. And so you are not allowed to sin now to mitigate the consequences of their Avera, to protect them. But if there's an opportunity to prevent somebody from doing an Avera, a serious Avera in the first place, then we do say, you go ahead and do something which is a minor issue to prevent somebody else from doing a major issue. That's why Rashi says, you may not sin in order to help somebody avoid punishment. That Rashi is saying the only time I'm not allowed to sin for somebody else is if they've already messed up and I'm just trying to protect them from punishment. But if I can protect them from sin and there are various serious and mine is not so serious, I have to be prepared to do that minor avera to stop them. Now we understand why the Torah was comfortable to put the two parashas together, even though that might create a minor avera. What's the minor avera? The possibility of implying that Miriam did something that classified her like the Miraglim. The reason it was valuable to do this is because this held the potential to stop the Miraglim from doing a very major sin. So we'll take that risk. We'll allow Miriam possibly to be exposed inappropriately so as to try and protect the Miraglim. That's why Rashi says they didn't learn a lesson. They saw what happened and the Miraglim didn't learn a lesson. That's the whole point that Rashi wants to say. Why do you learn a lesson? To be able to safeguard yourself from doing the same thing. They saw what happened. They did not learn the lesson, so they did not safeguard themselves. Rashi is therefore alluding to the fact that why did this all happen? To try to safeguard them. I guess there is something we could think about for ourselves about the concept of taking Minor risks in our Yiddishkeit, not chas but you know, sometimes to put ourselves in a position where our Yiddishkeit is a little bit more difficult to uphold in order to stop somebody else from losing the Yiddishkeit altogether.